0: Well, last week we kicked off a short series called God's Good Design, and if you were here, you know that specifically last week we dealt with the topic of God's good design for sex, and it was interesting. Lots of people uncomfortable with that I was totally comfortable with that, not uncomfortable at all. Uh, this week I was uh, showing another pastor around our facility, and he saw our sermon banner up there, and he goes, "Whoa!" And I said, "Yes, whoa." So we have been talking through this and teaching through this now for the second week. And the reality is, hopefully last week you walked away and said, hey, I get the thesis of this, that God has a good design for everything. And when we follow God's design, no matter what area of life we're talking about, it leads to human flourishing. And when we abandon God's good design for anything, it leads to brokenness. That's the big picture thesis uh, that we're teaching through this little series. And we just happen to be dealing with the area of sex and sexuality because this is an area both in culture and in the church now where God's good design is being questioned and the result has been so much brokenness. And even though it can be uncomfortable topics to teach through sometimes, and even controversial topics in some circles, if you love people, you can't give them over to brokenness. And so we should hold up high the standard of God's good design. Again, His design applies to marriage, and work, and relationships, and finances, and parenting, and yes, even sex and sexuality. And so we see much of that brokenness as a departure of that good design. So what we learned last week is that God created sex, and that in the context of what God created uh, is a good gift meant to glorify God, and there is both a spiritual and a physical aspect of sex that we learned last week, and marriage is the context for which that good gift is to be celebrated and it is to flourish And so this week, we're going to move from sex into sexuality, and specifically, uh, we're going to deal with the subject of homosexuality. And here's the reason why. Uh, It's because we enjoy picking subjects that are incredibly divisive in an effort to get as many people angry at us as possible, right? Uh, Next week, I'm going to teach an actual series, who you should vote for if you're really a Christian. It's going to be great. Well, in all seriousness, uh, if you've been a part of Liberty Heights Church, uh, we've taught on these subjects before that's not new for us, and uh, here's why we're teaching on them again. It's because we've just, again, reached the point where there's so much brokenness uh, out in culture, and now we've reached the topic today where there's so much uh, division and confusion, even within the context of the church. Uh, Let me give you some examples. The entire uh, Methodist denomination has split in half, literally, uh, over this issue. Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican denominations have split in half, or at the very least have had splinters off over this issue. Uh, Many parachurch groups, even uh, celebrated Christian authors, have expressed support uh, for gay marriage and then later retracted those uh, under pressure. And amongst all this lack of clarity, uh, I would contend that once again, just like last week, the key question is this Does the Bible have authority? There's all kinds of other auxiliary questions we could wrestle through on sex and sexuality. But the key question uh, uh, over all of this is simply this, does the Bible have authority? And so, so much controversy among Christians and non-Christians regarding the topic of homosexuality. And so one of the observations we made this week as we were studying together as pastors and sitting in our sermon prep meetings is there's really, in the banner of uh, sexuality, there's really very little pushback or controversy in many other areas that relate to human sexuality. Think about it. Uh, I've yet to see a marketing campaign or a special interest group, whether Christian or non-Christian, pushing for wholesale acceptance of pedophilia or bestiality or sex trafficking or pornography. I've yet to see a politician run on the platform of legalizing uh, incest. No one is promoting adultery as a part of God's good design that leads to human flourishing. But when it comes to the topic of sexuality, what happens uh, on this topic, unfortunately, is that often our worldview becomes clouded by politics or personal feelings as opposed to what does the Scripture actually teach. And is the Bible, in fact, true when it says it pertains all things pertaining to life and Godliness? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And so let me just say this kindly uh, but clearly uh, whatever your thoughts are about the subject, about homosexuality, as a part of God's design for sexuality, uh, if you cannot connect your position back to Scripture, then you don't have convictions, you've got opinions. But when it comes to this topic, uh, so much of our worldview has not been connected to Scripture. And so, for example, I've, I've met people who say, hey, I'm, I'm totally against gay marriage and the reason is because I'm Republican. Or I'm totally for gay marriage and the reason is because I have someone that I love uh, in my circle of influence who in fact is uh, in a gay relationship. And so here's the reality. Both of those, uh, we have to agree, are not rooted in Scripture. And the Scripture says in fact we're leaning onto our own understanding which is exactly what Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 and 6 warns us. Not to do. And so the question becomes, not what's your opinion on this, what are your convictions? And if you can't go back to Scripture, you have opinions, not convictions, on these issues. So with all that framework set up, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to two places this morning. We're going to look at one Old Testament, one New Testament. Uh, We're going to start in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, and then we're going to look at also Leviticus chapter 18 this morning. So when you study the issue from a biblical perspective on homosexuality, uh, basically you're going to find six primary passages. There's one additional passage that some would say indirectly speak to that in Genesis chapter 9 when Noah got drunk and they wondered if something happened that was a homosexual act and that was the result of the curse. But there's disagreement on that. But these six are the clearest ones. Let me list these out for you. They may be up on the screen. I'm not sure. Genesis chapter 19 uh, verses 1 through 13 is one of those passages. Uh, Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22 Leviticus chapter 20 uh, verse 13, Romans chapter 1 verse 26 and 27, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, and 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. And so basically you've got three Old Testament passages and three New Testament passages. We're going to look at two of the primary ones this morning. And one of the reasons we're going to start in Romans chapter 1 is because this is both the clearest and most thorough passage of all those six that we referenced this morning. So we're also going to spend some time looking at Leviticus chapter 18 as well. And this week we're only going to have one main teaching point. And uh, we're going to try and examine those texts in light of that truth. And we're going to address some common arguments raised by people who object to what we're teaching uh, here this morning. And then next week in the third and final message in the series, we're going to deal with the rest of those objections. Uh, hopefully in, an, in a way that uh, has integrity with the scriptures. All right, so Romans chapter 1. Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 21, and we'll look down through verse 32. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up, listen to this phrase, to dishonorable passions. And then He begins to list those out. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Think about that. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, if you're not a Bible scholar, none of those are compliments, all right? And then he has this summary statement. It's astounding in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, talking about the penalty under the law, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Several years ago, there was a well-known megachurch pastor in charismatic circles. He frequently was on uh, TBN. And after many years of marriage, he told his wife uh, that he was ending their marriage because he, in fact, was uh, pursuing a homosexual relationship. And I watched that video when it first came out, and I went back and re-watched it this week. And, and as he went around and around, he tried to justify his sexuality in light of passages of Scripture that teach differently. And so this interview person is saying, hey, what about this verse, and what about this verse, and what about this verse? And when it came to Romans chapter 1, here's what he said in the interview. And I quote, he said, let me just put it this way. The Apostle Paul was right on a lot of things, but the complexities of relationships was not one of them. And so what's so striking about that comment is two things. Number one, he had to abandon the doctrine of inerrancy and the authority of Scripture to justify his position. He said, hey, the only explanation I can give you is that Scripture and Paul's writings here, they're inspired. There is an error in Paul's writings. So he had to abandon the doctrine of inerrancy. And secondly, the teaching and context of Romans chapter 1 was so clear that he could not deny what was being taught, so he tried instead to deny the credibility of the teacher. Romans chapter 1, Paul is teaching what does it look like when people start worshiping or stop worshiping the one true God and in turn give themselves over to the full indulgence of their sinful desires. And basically, uh, Romans chapter 1 kind of breaks apart in three categories. In verses 21 through 23, Paul gives a descriptor of, hey, This is what it looks like when you worship the creation instead of the creator. And then he begins to list out when when a person starts to worship anything that's created instead of the creator, he says, here's the categories of sin that they'll involve themselves in. And so in verses 24 through 27, Paul talks about the sexual activities that are outside of God's good design for sexuality. When something created like sex is worshipped instead of the creator. And so do not make light of that. Paul saying, hey, if you want to know what it looks like when idolatry is taking place, worshiping something that's created instead of the creator, the very first category of sins that he lists, that he gives people over to, is sexual sins. And then he goes on in verses 28 through 32, and he says, hey, but that's not the stopping point. All of these sins start to play out in a person's life and in the life of a society when we start to worship the creation instead of the one true God. And then he makes this fascinating summary statement in verse 32. He says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice, so habitual pattern, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Uh, One translation reads this way, verse 32. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Do you see what he's saying? He saying when society gives itself over to worship creation instead of the creator, when they give themselves over to idolatry, they're not just content to engage in that idolatrous lifestyle themselves. He says they encourage other people to do the same. They become idolatry evangelists. It's no longer enough that, that I'm participating in this. I will not be satisfied until everyone engages in this because if enough people agree with me, then surely what I'm doing can't be Wrong. And so he's trying to convince others that this is the way to true satisfaction, true freedom, true identity is found in a departure from God's good design, not in submission to it. That's the lie that idolatry always promises and never delivers. That if you'll just pursue this, that your identity will be sured up. If you just pursue this, you'll be secure. If you just pursue this, then your heart will finally and fully be satisfied and the lie that something outside of God or God's good design will satisfy is as old as creation itself we see it played out over and over in the old covenant with Israel we see it played out over and over in the warnings of the new testament and we still see this playing out today if you're listening say amen you ever wonder why people pursue sin it feels good to other people right pursuing sin Here's why. It's not not a mystery. Here's why. Because they've yet to be fully convinced that God's good design will truly satisfy their hearts. That's why people pursue sin. Because they've yet to be convinced that what God has for them and the life that God has offered them will truly satisfy their hearts. And so they pursue other things. And so, leads us to our main principle this morning, which is simply this. Is that God's design for sexuality has never changed. In the six primary passages where homosexuality is dealt with, one thing is consistent. Over all six of these passages, homosexuality is presented as a sinful departure from God's design for sexuality. God has always had a good design for sexuality to be affirmed or practiced by those living in a covenant relationship with him. Now, Even people who disagree with that, even people who want to debate that, push back on that, even those who say, hey, at first glance, when you read these six passages, even though we're we're critics, we would agree that all of these are warnings or judgments, all six of them, at face value. But what they say is, but when you read the context and study what's going on in the culture, it doesn't really mean what it says, but all of them would agree, at face value, these are all six of them warnings and or judgments as a departure from God's good design. So, God's Designed for sexuality has never changed despite the covenant. Let's jump over to Leviticus chapter 18 for a few minutes. Let's set the context of the verse that speaks specifically about homosexuality and all kinds of other sexual sins starting in verse 20. I want you to read first with me verses 1 through 4. and I want you to listen to the context. Because if you don't understand the context of what's being taught in Leviticus 18, then if your argument that homosexuality is a departure from God's good design, it's going to fall apart in verse 20 and on if you don't understand the context in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 through 4, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, very important, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do, In the land of Egypt where you live, you should not do as they do. In the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you, you shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Now clearly if you read this, what he's describing here and the language here, this is covenant language. What God is saying, hey, there's some some statutes out here that, that you have to abide by. Because we're in a covenant relationship. You're my chosen people. I'm your God. And these are the principles that will govern this covenant relationship. And he says, hey, I, I know that back in Egypt, they had a different set of standards. doesn't apply to you. I know that in Canaan, where we're going in the future, there's going to be a different set of standards and all kinds of immorality. That doesn't apply to you. So here's what he's saying. And do not miss this. What God is explaining right here in these verses is that covenant... Not culture should govern how we live. He said, I I know what the culture of Egypt was. But that doesn't apply to you because we're in a covenant relationship. I know already what the culture in Canaan is going to be like. But that doesn't apply to you because covenant, not culture, forms this relationship. Now, do you believe that God's good design leads to human flourishing for all of society? whether people are Christians or not, absolutely. But what God is explaining is he's saying, hey, listen, if all of culture, if all of society would follow these principles and this covenant relationship, they would flourish. But when it comes to you, that this isn't an optional thing for you. This is exactly what it looks like to live in a covenant relationship here with you. Now, why is that so important? Because when you get down to verse 20, 21, 22, 23 and beyond, if you don't understand the nature of covenants and the context of what's being taught here, then most of your argument is going to fall apart. Let me, let me explain that. One of the common arguments for those who are critical of anyone who teaches that homosexuality is not a part of God's good design is that Christians cherry-pick verses which they obey and disobey. Anybody ever heard that? I have. Timer 200. And the reality is this, uh, if we're not careful, we're not going to know how to answer that objection. And they're going to go to these same Old Testament passages and go, oh, so you're against this, but you're totally fine with this. And how do you pick and choose? And you're a hypocrite, and you're inconsistent, and all those things. How many of you used to watch the show, The West Wing? Anybody watch that show, The West Wing? I, I don't seen the episodes, but I have uh, watched this clip. And so uh, in this clip, uh, President Bartlett, he distorts some of these verses of the Old Testament as it relates to prohibitions that God put in place for his covenant people. And so this is a great example, illustration of what happens in this conversation. I like how you call homosexuality an
1: abomination. I don't say homosexuality an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, a sanctioned in <laughs> Exodus 21:7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35-2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing
0: garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions. Can we just all agree the Washington Redskins could never play football? Amen? Like, you disagree with that. Does he have a valid argument? And if you were in that room, how, how would you respond to that? Or would you just caught up and say, well, I don't actually know. I mean, if homosexuality is wrong, it's taught in verse 22 of Leviticus that we'll get to in just a minute. Shouldn't we... Also obey the other laws is the point that he's making about eating shellfish and mixing seeds and mixed fabrics and corners of fields being harvested. Because listen, that's all in Leviticus as well. How do I handle those objections as a Christian? Well, let me go back and remind you. First of all, not all of Leviticus is written to everyone. When God was giving specific instructions to the children of Israel, He would use this phrase over and over: "Speak to the sons of Israel." In the Book of Leviticus, matter of fact, we made a list this week. There were eight different instances where He said, "Speak to the sons of Israel." Now, why is that important? Because what He's saying is, "Hey, whatever's going on in culture is none of your business. Whatever's going on in Egypt, whatever's going on in it's none of your business. These prohibitions are specifically for you, sons of Israel, as part of the law that governs our." covenant relationship and so uh, over and over we see this uh, in this included rules about rest and peace offerings and ceremonial uncleanness and what god is saying is hey these are some special covenant relationships not to everyone but to the israelites verse 4 he said you israel shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk him i am the lord your god and so what he's laying out here is, hey, this is, this is what governs our relationship. So when the Bible in Leviticus talks about wearing mixed fabrics, that, that's, not a, that's not fashion advice. Do you understand that? When it talks about them not intermingling certain fabrics, the reason was because of this. is because wool was what the ephod or the over uh, vest was that the priest wore, And he said, that's a garment set aside, that fabric, for those who are in holy service to be separate from everyone else. When he talked about not planting seeds uh, that were different kinds of seeds in the same kind of harvest, here's why. Some of those seeds were used to produce harvests that were used for sacred purposes in the feast and on and on and on. Eating shellfish and lobster and all those kind of things, guess what? Those were considered ceremonial unclean animals. And those who were in a covenant relationship with God had to obey certain covenant relationship laws about the ceremonial things. So there were prohibitions that only applied to Israel, but there were also prohibitions. He said, hey, this defiles everyone. Go down to verse 22. In verse 22, as he's teaching here, Leviticus chapter 18, he says this, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. And you should not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It's perversion. Do not make for yourselves unclean by any of these things. Now, listen to this. Listen right here. For by all these, the nations. So he's now saying, hey, this is not just for Israel. This, These are now the activities that defy all the nations or defile them. All these nations, I'm driving out before you, have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, covenant, shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. Listen to verse 27. For the people of the land who are before you, so again, everybody, not just Israel, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean. And so when people make this argument say, oh, you're you're totally against this, but you're totally fine with eating lobster, and you're totally fine with wearing you know, mixed fabrics or those kind of things. You're totally fine intermingling your crops. It's because they have no concept uh, about how covenants work and what govern the covenants with God's chosen people. The Mosaic Law governed the Old Covenant. There were 613 laws in the Mosaic Covenant. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? And the grouping of those laws went into three categories, all right? So if you're listening, say Amen. There is the moral law, there is the civil law, and then there were ceremonial laws. The civil law governed how they related to each other. And it stopped when that culture and covenant uh, passed away. The ceremonial laws were abandoned or were fulfilled actually in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13 says that the old covenant has become obsolete. Why? Because it's all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We don't need a priest because he is our high priest. We don't need to keep offering up sacrifice because he is the one final true sacrifice never to be offered up again. That's the whole basis of the book of Hebrews. That Jesus is a better priest, a better king, a better covenant, all those things. Now we're under the covenant of grace. But the third area of the law, the moral law, transcends covenant and culture because it reflects the unchanging character of God. Here's the easiest way I can illustrate this. Ten Commandments. Now that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, is it okay to worship things other than God? No. Is it now okay to murder? No. Is it now okay to take your neighbor's wife? No. No. Thou shalt not murder, is the moral law still in effect, not eating shellfish, ceremonial law, only for the Jews in the Old Testament, and no longer applicable. So what about the prohibition against homosexuality? How do we know? How do we know that wasn't a short-term part of the ceremonial law? Because back in verse 24, God said, because of these sexual sins, and he lists out a category of them, all nations have been defiled. Verse 27 repeats the same he doesn't say, hey, because they mixed their linens and wool, they're all defiled. No, because they ate shellfish, they're all defiled. He says, no, because of these sexual sins, all nations have been defiled. Here's another rule. How do you know when a covenant principle is still binding? It's through the moral character of God. It's because it's repeated once again in the New Testament, the New Covenant. And the New Testament could not be any clearer. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 says that homosexuality is a result of denying and disobeying God. When people continue in sin uh, sin and unbelief, Romans 1 says, God gives them over to more wicked and depraved sin to show them the hopelessness of life apart from God and lists this huge category of sins of which homosexuality is one of them. It's certainly not the only one listed, but it is one of them clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 1. Now, Let me deal with one more final objection this morning, and then we'll save the rest for next week. Sometimes people say, hey, do you you think the Bible should be taken literally? And what they're hoping is you say yes, they say, aha, what about this? Here's Here's what I would teach you, and here's what I tell them. The Bible should be taken literally where it intends to be literal. God, through the human authors that God spoke through clearly used hyperbole and exaggeration to make points just like we would today so let me give you an easy example when they're trying to trip Jesus up and said hey should I forgive a man seven times Jesus said you're not even close you should forgive a man 70 times 7 clearly Jesus is using an exaggeration to make his point that they don't understand the depths of grace Jesus is not teaching in a literal way that you should forgive someone 490 times and on offense number 491 you should knock their head off, amen? And so when I explain the literal interpretation of the Bible people say oh it's on this particular subject so you believe the Bible should be taken literally regarding homosexuality. Then I guess you think homosexuals should be killed because that's what the Bible says. They should be put to death. I guess you think that children who disobey their parents should be put to death as well. Yes and amen. Can I get amen on? <laughs> And then you say, if you say, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe that's true, they go, oh, So you pick and choose which parts of the Bible you believe, including your beliefs about homosexuality. And again, you know what this is? It's an ignorance of the old covenant. What they don't understand is, yes, under the old covenant that all these sins were punishable by death under the law. But when Christ fulfilled all the sacrifices required of the law, guess what? These sins that were once death penalty worthy can now be forgiven in Jesus Christ in the new covenant, praise God. Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now, in the new covenant of grace, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, listen to this, what the law weakened by the flesh, in other words, it couldn't be obeyed, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemns sin in the flesh, listen to this, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, praise God. And so what he's saying is yes. At the end of Romans 1, these things are worthy of death. And he gives a whole list of things in there. And homosexuality is not the only thing, but it's certainly in there in that list as well. But he gives this whole big list, and he said, under the law, All these things were punishable by death, but now in Christ who's died to fulfill all the requirements of the law, all these things can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. So again, when people make that argument, they don't understand the covenants and how that works, and how Leviticus fits in Romans 1 and all these things. And so God's moral law has not changed regarding sexuality and applies to everyone. Didn't change in the Old Testament. To the New Testament, the difference is what once was punishable by death can now be forgiven in Jesus Christ because of his death on our behalf. And so we believe that everyone experiences flourishing by obeying God's moral laws, and everyone experiences brokenness by abandoning it. But what about those living outside of God's good design for sexuality in every other area? What hope do they have? I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul answer this question, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? That, 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 can we disagree that's the strongest language you can have in the Bible? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in or practice is what some translations say, practice the habitual pattern, unrepentant habitual pattern. Those who indulge in Sexual sin, or worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or who practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or are greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And so God's saying, hey, this is what holiness looks like, and you can get all upset about homosexuality, but guess what? God's saying, hey, if you're guilty of practicing these sins as well, you're in that same category. But listen to this in verse 11. Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by The Spirit of God. Did you hear that? What he's saying here is that Jesus is available to everyone who's been guilty of sexual sin, whether homosexual or heterosexual sin, because he lists both of them in that passage. Jesus is available, according to this passage, for greedy, materialistic people, Jesus is available for people who get drunk. Thieves and cheats are welcome at the table of grace, is what he's saying in this passage. No matter what sin you're guilty of, guess what? He says, but such were some of you. In other words, you were indulging in all these things. Fill in the blank, it doesn't really matter. But then you had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and you've been saved and cleansed and set free. And such were some of you until you met Jesus. There's hope for sinners in Jesus Christ. And no matter what sin you're guilty of on this list or list on Romans 1, pick any of them. Because they all condemn us. You're only one repentant prayer away from having all of that forgiven by Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus is available today to Everyone. Who will repent and believe? I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to speak to two groups of people. Some of you are living outside of a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter which sinful patterns you've been guilty of. The good news of the gospel is this, that every single sin under the covenant of grace can be forgiven by Jesus. You say, Brad, I've been guilty of sexual sin in all kinds of ways. I've been guilty of materialism, I've been guilty of being greedy or lying or being, doesn't feel the blank, pick any off that list. Listen, the good news of the gospel to you this morning is this. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. No one has sinned so long or so great that the grace of God cannot forgive them. And so this morning, if that's you, if you say, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ because I just feel like I'm not worthy. Listen, Christ died for sinners. And so, if you're here this morning, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about being good enough because Jesus was on your behalf. And so, today, would you just confess your sins, whatever they are? Would you just lay yourself at the mercy of the feet of Jesus Christ and ask for his forgiveness today? Would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you're here and you do have a relationship, With Jesus Christ, would you just pray right now and say, Lord, give me compassion for people who are far from you. Would you pray that right now? I I don't care what type of sin they're guilty of. Would you just pray, Lord, give me compassion. Help me to run towards, not away from people who are far from Jesus. Because you know what? When Jesus found you, that's exactly where he found you too. Father, I pray that we would get to the place where we really would believe that God's grace is so powerful that every single sin can be forgiven. And that God, because of that deep conviction, we would run towards people, not with bullhorns, but with the good news of Jesus Christ. So God, help us to love people who are far from you, because that's exactly who we once were. God, we're grateful for the power of grace that changes lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.